Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Well, welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I am excited to interview a man that I have learned from over the last couple years. I get to interview today Dr. John Snyder. John, how are you doing today? Doing well. Good deal. Good deal. Well, I'm going to pray, and then I just have a few questions for you, and I'm excited to hear what, you, what answers you have for us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace that unites uh, John and myself as brothers, and for the listeners who are out there, also unites us as brothers and the sisters that are listening in. We thank you for that as well. I pray that you would lead this discussion, uh, and I just thank you for the, the life and, and the ministry that uh, that is Dr. Snyder and all that you're doing through him, and just lead this time. I trust that you're going to, and uh, and, and as always, I ask you to put a big spotlight on Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, John, for those who may not know you or may not be all that familiar with your work, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and then what it is that you do? Yeah, well, I'm married, and we have four children. They go from 29 years old uh, girl down to a 20-year-old boy. I'm a pastor at uh, Christ Church in New Albany. It's a, it's a Baptist church. And um, what else do you want? And, and I do sometimes do a podcast. Okay. Sometimes I'm asked to put together... Um, a book. So we've done a couple of those, the Behold Your God study, and yep. we're working on kind of starting uh, the work on a third where we deal with Christology. Fantastic. That's where I was first familiar with you and uh, Media Gratier with Matthew Robinson, but I first got a hold of Behold Your God and our church worked through that. We're actually a part of Christ. I pastor a church called Christ Church in Carbondale, Illinois. So, oh, okay. Yeah. 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 So we're a confessional Baptist church as well. That's kind of neat. Um, okay, so let's go back to the beginning. When were you, uh, beginning your walk with the Lord, when, when, is, when was it that you were converted? Uh, well, I grew up in a very godly home, and, um, and I rejected the practical implications of that for myself. Um, never able to intellectually reject the reality of God, because I, I saw that continually expressed uh, in my parents' lives. And um, went to a, a small Southern Baptist church in Columbus, Ohio, and it really, a, you know, a group of earnest believers. And, uh, you know, around age 12 or 13, I, I was pretty precocious. I was always wanting to win, you know, whatever the Southern Baptist church reward was that week, you know, okay. like pizza party or whatever. <laughs> so I was always memorizing the most verses and inviting the most kids to the revival services. And one of the things that I did was, you know, I did do a lot of reading for a kid that age, especially an unconverted kid. So I read uh, A.W. Tozer. Uh, my mother read through the scriptures to me uh, in the in the evening. Uh, I was quite a hyperactive kid. So, she, you know, the deal was if I would get in bed and be quiet, she would read. So okay. I took that. Um, she read through the biographies, Hudson Taylor, um, George Mueller. So my head was crammed full of good things. And then I read uh, Spurgeon. I had a godly grandfather who gave me Spurgeon books. But it wasn't until age 20, in the midst of studying for the ministry at a small Baptist college, that through a series of events, um, sinful choices on my part, um, I, I came to realize that I was not, um, 
I was not a person that needed to rededicate my life again, but mm-hmm. I was uh, I was lost. Wow. And all my religion was about me, and I was really using God. And um, and so when I saw the heinousness of my sin and the the degree to which it touched every area, even my religion, um, you know, I would have despaired. But a friend came alongside me, and um, I just went and spent the weekend with him. He was an older bachelor minister, and his name was Clyde Cranford. And uh, Clyde just talked to me about the the cross the whole weekend. And, you know, it really brought me to the place where I was willing to say to God that uh, no more no more bargains. Mm-hmm. Um, he could just have, if he wanted me, he could have all of me. And my only, uh, I couldn't pay him back for the cross, but I could live for love of Christ. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so that was, that was my conversion. It wasn't until a few years later, looking back that I realized that that really was the, the opening of the gate and walking on the path. That was, you know, that was the great transaction. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, yeah, so he was very merciful to me. Wonderful. I'm going to really set you up at the end of this interview to just praise God for his grace. And the last question, I'll just kind of put it in your head right now, but the last question I always ask people I interview is, why do you love Jesus so much? And I just kind of, it's almost like in volleyball, I just set you up for a big spike to praise Jesus. So just keep that in your mental Rolodex. And I can already hear that coming out of you as you're just talking, but uh, I'm excited to hear about that here in a little bit. So you're converted, so you're early 20s. Now, you've been called into ministry. How, tell us about the internal and external call into ministry for you. What, what did that look like? Uh, well, the internal call, you know, as I mentioned, I was converted while studying for the ministry. So oh, okay. um, it was, you know, I... I would go all the way back to like a kid's camp that I went to and I went forward at the invitation and um, dedicated my life to missions. So that's what set me on the course of studying for the ministry. And um, but after conversion, um, you know, I had an opportunity to I I was I was a youth minister at that time. And so I resigned that position and told people that I was a novice and should not be in any leadership position. And so for the next year or six months or so, I I didn't accept any invitations to speak anywhere and just read my Bible. And, um, the first invitation I took after that, I, uh, I spoke about 15 minutes at a church and there was such an unusual response in the people. Um, I knew that church well, I had been a member of that church and I had been a, a quite a pain in everybody's side. And so, um, as a converted John Snyder, um, there was a difference now. And after I spoke about Christ, the, um, there was such an unusual response that the preacher turned to me and talked to me, you know, in front of everybody, mm-hmm. uh, about, um, about the, the kindness of the Lord and the gifts that he had given me, you know, and it just floored me. Wow. But it was what it was what the Lord used to help confirm that I, I that the desire in my heart was from him, even though, you know, um, even though the, the response to the altar call was long before I was a Christian, that that I did not need to get off that course. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for the external call, if you're talking about like the involvement of church and, and, a, and a, a safe and biblically appropriate way of pointing me to the ministry and training me, none of that occurred. Okay. Um, I was in a, I was in a classic kind of, you know, evangelicalish church with not very careful theology, but mm-hmm. with genuine believers sprinkled here and there. So I just, 
did what you know everybody did. So I graduated. I went to a Christian college. Graduated. Went to a seminary. Um, the Lord did provide mentoring through the man that I mentioned that led me to the Lord. Right. But but other than that, um, you know, it was just kind of the classic system of get a master's degree and then put your resume out and right. look for churches. Um, I, I did not end up taking that normal route because I went and did the PhD in in the little country of Wales. Mm-hmm. And while we were there, we were we attended the church for three years, pastored by a man named Vernon Hyam. Okay. Now, Vernon Hyam recently passed away. He was Martin Lloyd-Jones' best friend. Oh, wow. And he preached Dr. and Mrs. Lloyd-Jones' funerals. Oh, wow. Um, the, peop- the people in his church in Cardiff, Wales, which was 900 in attendance every Sunday. It was amazing, for Britain especially. Uh, the people in that church... Um, were the warmest, most theologically careful, uh, most evangelistic people we had ever met. It was like watching Charles Spurgeon's sermons walk around. Wow. Um, it, <laughs> it was incredible. It, yeah, it was an oasis for me. And that's really where I began to rethink, um, you know, American religion was mm. just sitting under that man's ministry for three Goodness. years. That is so fantastic. So 2012 was the year of Lloyd-Jones for me. Uh, and Dr. Lloyd-Jones has been, God has used him and been so kind to me through the sermons of Martin Lloyd-Jones and the books. And I know he never wrote a book, but his sermons turned into books have been so transformative. Uh, what, for for those who are maybe not familiar with Lloyd-Jones, um, what, are, what are some pathways in that you encourage guys who've never heard of him? I've got a lot of young listeners here who maybe have heard names thrown around, but haven't ever even, you know, opened a Lloyd-Jones book, maybe they've read preaching and preachers in seminary classes. Where do you tell people to start when they're getting into reading Martin Lloyd-Jones? Yeah, well, like you said, there's so many available now um, that have been um, books that have been, you know, um, crafted from his sermons mm-hmm. post, post-death. Um, but I, I would say that Sermon on the Mount is where I started, but that's a pretty big you know, I, right. I did that because I was a pastor. I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. So um, that may be a big bite for somebody. Um, but there are a lot of smaller books now that the banner has put out that, mm-hmm. um, you know, like there's there's one on Mary's Magnificat that I think is four sermons on her, uh, the passage there. You know, that's a great Christmas book. Mm-hmm. The um, You know, there, there's other books that are just small collections of his sermons, which, you know, maybe 180 page paperback. Those would be good places to start. But once a guy or gal gets your foot in the water and kind of gets used to the way Lloyd-Jones writes, and I always encourage people when they read a new author, um, especially if it's an older author, and you may not be used to reading older authors, and Lloyd-Jones is very readable, um, but, but if you find him difficult... I always encourage them, you know, read about three chapters before you make up your mind to quit reading. So there, there are some authors that when I read them, I, I really find it difficult to understand what they're trying to communicate. I mm-hmm. just don't, I don't, I'm not used to their way. And sometimes that's a modern author because there's just story after story right. and clever, quippy stuff. And, and I, I get frustrated with them. I think, would you get serious and get to the point? And, um, and, you know, I'm ready to just throw the book in the trash can. But if I read three chapters, generally then I kind of understand the author. And then I can know whether or not, you know, it's really a benefit to continue. Okay. But if I were to advise anybody, um, other than reading just short collections of his sermons, Romans 5 and Romans 6. But oh, if, if that's too yes. much for you, you know, Romans chapter 6, I think, is 
one of the top 10 most influential books um, in my own life. And I went into that book um, with different views than what Lloyd-Jones said. You know, mm -hmm. I went into it having read guys like Andrew Murray or yeah. Oswald Chambers, you know, and thinking that, um, that, that I needed this extraordinary kind of white funeral where self is going to die finally. And Lloyd-Jones was such a, a, a benefit to me in that mm. chapter. That's so good. And so this gentleman you worked under and served with, he was Lloyd-Jones' best friend. Yeah, now I was so just cool. a church member there. I mean, you know, we okay. taught classes together since I okay. was a uh, student. Um, he was in his 80s okay. when I met him. And, um, but yeah, he was the pastor at the Heath Evangelical Church. And, uh, so we just, for three years, I just got to listen. Man, that is so cool. That is so cool. Okay. So this wasn't in the questions, but I have to ask it. I, one of the things I love about Lloyd Jones is even when you disagree with him, he has a way about it that you enjoy disagreeing with him. Even when you disagree, you're like, okay, I see the conclusions. I, I see where he's coming from. Um, and it doesn't, it's not repulsive. It just pulls you in. And the book that I said for, for the longest time, it's the best book I've ever read that I disagree with, was his collection of sermons on, uh, on the Holy Spirit and the baptism with the Holy Spirit, Joy Unspeakable. Now, have you read that? Have you read that book? I have. Okay. What were your thoughts on that? It's so con I mean, Pentecostals, they use that book to grab Lloyd-Jones and say, look, he's <coughs> with us, you know? Um, and it was, it was such a stretching time and such a good time just getting into that book. And I just loved it. What were your thoughts of Joy Unspeakable? It's been a while since I've read it. I, so I think I would say that the nomenclature, you know, kind of a pre-Pentecostal movement nomenclature. Mm -hmm. So he's not afraid at all to use phraseology that was mm -hmm. very common in the 18th century. You know, when you read Lloyd-Jones, it's clear the Puritans, but particularly the Puritans filter through the 18th century um, evangelical revival in, in the UK. Mm -hmm. Um you can see that those are the formative elements on them. There's a, there's a, a very experiential Calvinism. Yeah. Um, there is not a heavy emphasis. Um, uh, so here we have the 18th century guys. There's not a heavy emphasis on precise ecclesiology. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that I would say that Lloyd-Jones has soft edges when it comes to ecclesiology, and that's not a criticism. Actually, I really admire him and... Mm. Um, uh, a lot of my Reformed Baptist brothers would be frustrated with me because I would lean toward that. So mm -hmm. I understand I understand their complaints. I kind of uh, academically agree with them, but I can't help myself. Right. So, um, so in that book, I would say that I guess I would say this. I, I I certainly couldn't agree with everything that was said there, but I wish that I experientially knew the degree of the work of the Spirit that he knew, mm -hmm. and the and the the degree of equipping that that book speaks of. And um, hmm. so, you know, maybe with your heart, you agree a little bit more than you would with your, you know, with your theological mind where you say, um, I wish he would have stated it a little, uh, a little differently in light of the present, um, you know, in light of the present context that we're struggling with, where people are claiming to follow Lloyd-Jones there, right. who are, def who definitely are not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good way to, to, work through that and think through that. I, I think the, um, the book is so unique. I, went to, I have a Pentecostal holiness background. I grew up in like a Baptist, Baptist kind of church. And then my formal education 
is Wesleyan Holiness Pentecostal School, Trinitarian Pentecostal School down in eastern Tennessee. And uh, so I had to work through some of that, the language barriers, as I was working through Lloyd-Jones to understand, okay, he's not saying the same things that some of my Pentecostal friends are saying. And it's, it's nuanced in a way that is just rich, and it was wonderful. It was just a lot of fun. So, okay, we, we could keep talking Lloyd-Jones for a long time. I want to get to a few more of these questions here. What, so, um, so how long now have you been in pastoral ministry? Uh, about 23 years. Okay, 23 years. Okay, you're married, and how many kids did you say you have? Four. Okay, four children, and what's the age range of your children now? Youngest is 20, oldest is 29. Okay, 20 and 29. Now, uh, the the constant battle in the heart of a pastor is, is uh, okay, I'm a Christian man first. Before I'm anything else, I'm, I, I am what I am on my knees, Robert Murray McShay, uh, Nothing, nothing more, nothing less. Whatever the quote is, um, and uh, I'm a Christian first, and then I'm a husband, father, and then down the line, I'm a, I'm this, I'm a pastor. And they have these priorities in ministry that pastors have to work through. Whether you're young or older and middle age in ministry, um, you have to work through priorities about okay, how, how do I shepherd my family to an appropriate degree and give my best self to them? And uh, how have you worked out? your priorities of ministry to make sure that you didn't neglect your family, your wife, your children um, when they were younger? How did you manage your life to make sure that that did not happen, those priorities didn't get out of balance? Uh, well, I'm, I I guess I don't think of it in that way. Um, okay. I, I, I would think of it, I, I prefer, I mean, some guys are very, you know, analytical and they lay things out in lists in their mind and, um, uh, you know, very specific grid, and I'm mm-hmm. definitely not not that kind of guy. Okay, I would say that that the simple guideline for me is that Christ told us there is one great command to love. You know, Paul explains that all the commands are answered in the activity of love. So, love to God. So, I wake up today and I owe God um, a childlike, um, undistracted love, and. Um, and then, but then my other duty today is to love the people that he brings across my path. So that, mm. that's the foundation. Yeah, that's good. Then, and then, you know, I just look at kind of the people. I mean, you know, you wake up, you look at your family. If you got four-year-olds and five-year-olds and eight-year-olds running around like wild Indians, we homeschooled. Okay. So main, mainly, you know, um, I would play with them a little every day. I, I never found it hard to, you know, um, be around them. So uh, I, I kind of, I'm a bit of a, child at heart so my wife did all the heavy lifting when it came to homeschool mm-hmm. and um yeah but then you know when they hit teenage years then you know when you would see a peculiar need then i would i would just respond to i guess the short answer is um i would be very flexible and i re- would respond to the needs that i see so mm-hmm. when i had a teenage uh, boy who was having some troubles um you know as a young man like thinking through like uh, how do i how do i keep my thoughts pure or mm-hmm. those kind of things that young men have to go through. Um, so I just changed my schedule and every evening for a couple of years, I would, um, from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock or nine o'clock to 10 o'clock, whatever it was, it would just be time, just me and him. Mm-hmm. And I would spend yeah. time with him just in fun ways. Um, you know, some spiritual talk, but really it was just 
just being his friend and talking about growing up. And Mm -hmm. um, so that went on for two years, you know, and then then he didn't need that anymore. So that ended. And so I I suppose I would look at kind of the the degree of need, Um, you know, so so you have your basic rhythm of life. You have you know, you want to. Uh, you know, you know, you have things in church that you have to do mm-hmm. and you have things at the house that you have to do. Uh, but beyond that, I think I would just look at where the needs were and try not to be selfish in my response. That's so helpful. I like that. And I think that will be helpful for the guys that are listening in too. Just, um, I think different, different guys think through things different, different ways. So the grid and in uh, a, a list can be helpful in structuring my schedule for the week. What's my priority? And then what you've just described is so helpful as well. And so I think that's going to be, that's just, just really, really good. Okay, so there are a lot of pastors who don't have uh, uh, the grid or they don't understand pastoral priorities or even what you just talked about, just what's the need in front of me today as I love the Lord. And they burn out. It may be when they're 28 and have been in ministry for four years, or it may be when they're 42 at a midlife crisis. In your opinion, why, why do pastors, what's the central ingredient of why pastors burn out? Yeah. So in in response, even connected with the last question, Mm -hmm. um, as you mentioned from McShane, um, you know, the, the primary thing, uh, that, my soul is held in communion with God. Um, so I would say a couple of things deal with, uh, contribute to burnout. And I certainly never felt this in my 20s or 30s, um, not really even in my 40s, but I just turned 50. And I, I definitely feel the temptation. I, 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 I feel for guys that despair to the point of quitting hmm. because um, – I can empathize with that now in a way that I couldn't before. But I would say this. Here's what I see in myself and I think in other guys that I've talked to. The first aspect is fuel. What's the fuel for ministry? It is very difficult to know what fuel you are running on until the fuel you are running on is removed or tested, so to speak, through through different circumstances. So, mm-hmm. for example, I would have always told you that I'm I'm doing this for love of Christ. But what happens um, but but for you know 15 years of the last 19 years, um, the church I pastor uh, has been pretty easy. We've had a couple of bumpy years in the last couple of years. Um, and so I have pretty much enjoyed 15 years of people telling me I'm a wonderful pastor and how helpful I am. Wow. Um, now, I would never have told you that was the fuel I was running on. But when that dries up, then you realize, man, you know what? That was a that was added. That was wow. an additive that that should not been in the fuel. Um, and so I have to ask myself daily, are you doing what you're doing for love of the king so that the response of the people ultimately does not move you mm. um, forward or backward, that you can be a man who does not fear the face of men? And so it's for love of God that holds you, that you're held to the course. That's the fuel. That's the motivation. Uh, yeah. So the motivation uh, that would be the motivation. Maybe I should say that the fuel is is really the the love of Christ that you're living on um, in your own devotions. Hmm. But then expectation, you know, um, do we have a biblical expectation, or uh, you know, or a modern expectation, and where people feel very entitled? You know, I'm entitled to be treated this way or that way. 
And the longer you're at a pastorate, the more entitlement really creeps in where you think, yeah. hey, I'm, I'm the guy that started this church. I've been here 20 years. I have these special entitlements. Um, and that is really a, pr- a pretty wicked thing when our master told us what we could expect. Mm. And it was not uh, what, we would, we, what we would think. So, you know, what do I expect? If I'm, if I'm ministering for love of Christ and the fuel is living near him, the love of Christ for my own soul is my fuel and the motivation is love to Christ, then the expectation, then I'm freed. I don't have to use the people. Mm. And, and so I'm freed then to, to love them and to do what I'm doing regardless of whether they respond. There is no guarantee when I go into a room and have to have a hard talk with someone. Yeah. There is no there's no guarantee that they will respond well. There's no guarantee that they'll know it's love. There's no guarantee that they'll understand that it's the right thing, that I had to do that because it's the right thing. Um, but the, the only guarantee I have is this, that the master will know that I did it for love of him. Mm. And that will that will not be a small thing when I see him face to face. So... Those are the things I think that hold a man uh, from the edge of burnout. But the primary thing has got to be what McShane emphasized, mm-hmm. you know, is, is that um, intimate communion with the triune God. Yes. You know, it's so simple and it's uh, life with God. It's the, the finished work of Christ, Christ for me. And as I just listen to you talk, it just gets me so excited to think about um, life with the Lord now and just treasuring the presence of God. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Tozier at the beginning. It is interesting that you read certain people, and I don't know what it is about Tozier and, and some others as well. You get this about Lloyd-Jones, where you get this uh, almost like a, a transcendent, it's that they, they existed in the presence of God and for the presence of God. I mean, that's, that's I, I know that Practically speaking, it wasn't like a walking in Shekinah glory at all times for them, but there was this desire of, I, I want to be with God and near God and enjoy the finished work of Christ on, on, on for, my, for me. And uh, that, over the long haul, produces healthy men. This is a healthy man who happens to be a pastor, who's pastoring people. And if you don't have life with God. And it's just, anyways, now I'm rambling, but thank you so much. That's so crucial. So crucial. Um, so if you could sit down, this is uh 50 year old John, by the way, congrats on being 50. Yeah. Yeah. How you feeling? You feeling okay? <laughs> yeah. I feel like, uh, I think I feel 25 on the inside. Okay. There we go. Well, let's just use that number then. So you're 50 year old John. If you could sit down, drink a cup of coffee, if you're a coffee drinker with 25-year-old John, and talk to him about life and ministry, what would you say to him? Yeah, I would say read. Um, Okay, so other than the basics, I would say probably the most single, the most significant help I've found, and I've done it poorly, but it has been the course I've tried to stay on, is I have given the the great, uh, the majority, the lion's share of my reading outside of scripture has been reading books, uh, choosing authors as my friends who help me get the clearest views of the beauty of God, Mm. of the greatness of God. And I have purposefully neglected books that are good. They're good books, but they're books, um, on like, I call them how to books. Uh Uh-huh. 
Um, so like how to do church and how to do this. And so they, they are good books and that that's been a flaw, uh, a shortcoming in my personality. I tend to be kind of all one way or the other. I, I balance, I always find difficult, but I have never regretted giving the great share of my focus to the authors. So McShane, his friend, Andrew Bernard, the Puritan writers that speak of deal with, um, the love and loveliness of Christ, like Samuel Rutherford, one of my all-time mm-hmm. favorites, mm-hmm. Uh, Tozer. Um, so men that help me know God, I have found to be the most faithful friends. And men that teach me really precise uh, uh, theology, I, le- I do less of that. And men who tell me how to do church right, I, I do less of that. Yeah. So my, um, So I do not recommend... Oh, my, my own, uh, you know, lack of balance at times, but mm-hmm. I, I would definitely, if I had to do it all over again, I would definitely do that the same. I would definitely give the lion's share of my reading to men that warm my heart. Yeah, that's so good. You did your doctoral studies in, what was it, Puritan studies, or what was the specific? Yeah, uh, the doctoral study was the influence of Puritan soteriology okay on the first generation of the evangelical revival men in the uk so that would be like george whitfield uh-huh. and um and all the calvinistic wing of mm-hmm. that revival which was the majority in the early days uh john wesley's superior organization skills um ended up resulting in when wesley died there was a group of methodists they were wesleyan uh-huh. when the right. Cal- when the calvinistic leaders died um, even though they were in the majority, when they died, their their converts just they ended up uh, being absorbed by um, the dissenters. So they would be called so like um, Baptist Congregationalist Presbyterians. Right. Okay. Now, would that be the Banner of Truth came out with the Calvinistic Fathers of Wales? A few yeah. Years back? So that that would be yeah. In Wales, Calvinistic Methodism, so that mm-hmm. the Calvinistic, the George, actually George Whitfield was their first moderator mm-hmm. because the the Calvinistic leaders had some, uh, they had some strife because of some personality differences. So they asked Whitfield to be their 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 head, um, and uh, yeah, so they began in 1735, and um, they still exist today. The Calvinistic Methodist Church of Wales is just renamed the Presbyterian Church, but okay. sadly, it's become pretty it's become pretty liberal doggone it that's frustrating yeah um, yeah it's sad it is so Howell Harris and Daniel Rowland and oh yeah. Those, yeah yeah okay I used, to go to, I used to go sit and read books on the hills where Daniel Rowland preached right beside his church and pray that God would raise up more Daniel Rowland goodness that is so cool and was he or Howell Harris the extemporaneous preacher that uh, Harris was much more extemporaneous. Yeah, that's right. Uh, okay. In all things, and and leaned a little too much on his um, impressions, you know. Yes, that's so he right. Would, he he would be headed to preach in a town, and mm-hmm. you know, and it was announced he would preach there. And on the way, a bird would land on a post while he was walking and praying, and the bird would face the opposite direction, you know, at a T in the road. Uh-huh. And Harris would just Harris would tell himself that that was God directing him a different direction. Wow. And he would go to a different town, and so his <laughs> friends Whitfield, Roland, others tried to help him see that that was spiritual immaturity and Uh not the holy spirit uh he didn't always take advice well okay gotcha that is that is fascinating that stream of methodism and uh, i've heard of different pockets from from what i've heard there was a little pocket in north dakota or south dakota of welsh 
Method, Calvinistic Methodist. Have you heard of that group? No, I haven't. But I know that when the Welsh go somewhere, they do they do tend to, they do tend to cluster. So my, my question would be, you know, do they resemble the early Welsh Calvinistic Methodists, the first century of that, or um, you know, or is that you know the last the last century where it's it's become pretty uh, pretty empty? Yeah. Yeah, you know, liberalism, and it's. I'm working through some things with uh, some some people in our church, and just thinking through the cultural moment. And John, from uh, tell me if this assessment's right. Liberalism starts with just simple embarrassment about biblical texts, and embarrassment eventually grows, and downstream from embarrassment of the word ends up being rejection of the word. And I think that's. The, I'm a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and I, I love uh, my Southern Baptist friends, but I see some, um, some things happening, specifically in the areas of complementarianism and manhood and womanhood, of just simple embarrassment of particular texts. In your opinion, where, where does liberalism start? Is that a good assessment, bad assessment? Does it start with embarrassment? Where does liberalism start? Yeah, I think that's that's good. Uh, I think you could go back further. I think you could maybe go deeper in the root system. And I, I mean, really, I think that liberalism tends to begin in the unregenerate heart of a person that's dealing with Scripture, you know. Mm. Um, but also, but e- even in a true believer, you know, error creeps in. And I do think it creeps in when we lose. OK, so take a man that's in ministry. Uh-huh. He's constant. He's constantly experiencing the um, the pressures of human need. And if he cares about people, then those pressures are are legitimate. Mm-hmm. Um but that pressure will shift a man, and he will become a humanitarian rather than a follower of Christ. And mm. he will become more, you know, gen- generally speaking, kind of theologically liberal and man-centered unless he counteracts the constant pressure of human need with the constant exposure to the majesty of God in his own walk with him. So mm. it, it, there really isn't any other option. Either man becomes the man's need becomes the dominant force and that happens to people who are good people or the majesty or the or the glory of god holds you in its orbit and uh, you know you still care about men but that's not the fashioning factor Hmm. yeah that's so insightful that's so insightful um all right let's uh let's kind of bring this to a close here why don't you tell us a little bit about Behold Your God, uh, how that happened. Just give a shout out to Behold Your God. I've been helped by that greatly. And for listeners who don't know about it, I'd love for you to speak to that and tell them why it may be a good resource for their, for their church. Um, well, the Behold Your God study. Um, yeah, I, I was asked to speak on the radio last minute. Somebody canceled. So um, so uh, my wife is walking in here. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, the Behold Your God study started um, when, when I did this radio program. And um, so I got to pick the topic because it was the last minute, and I, I just did not have time, you know, to prepare for anybody else's topic. So the topic I picked was, um, you know, starting with rethinking God rather than trying to correct the problems of American evangelicalism by dealing with the fruit, let's go all the way back to the root. And so yeah. that was kind of the, the opening talk. And there was a pretty good response to that. And it's a thing that I had been thinking of for a while. And, um, and so they asked me if I would do a study, I, the American Family Association. And um, so I, I just didn't think that they would really want me to do that. So, you know, I thought it was a polite statement. So I've, I avoided giving a serious answer that 
for nearly two years. Okay. And um, but a man in our church that worked for AFA uh, came to me and said, "No, look, this is an this is a real offer. So we need to know yes or no." Mm-hmm. And um, so I was really surprised, you know, because uh, I don't know that my theology would necessarily line up with uh, what generally comes across on the radio. Right. In fact, I would you know, pretty certainly think it doesn't. So I, I asked them if they would give me um, a contract that said that um, I, I had complete control over the way they advertised it and uh-huh. over the content. Okay. And so they were they were kind enough to do that. They were really very generous hearted with me. And, um, uh, and then Matt Robinson was working for them at the time and a couple of other fellows that were at the church. And they gave Matt really like carte blanche to, and wow. so he, Matt, Matt and I were able to just kind of sit down. And Matt has, Matt really grasps uh, those concepts well. He knows what what ought to be said and why is why are we saying this and why are we saying at this point? Matt, really clear thinker, and so together we just we worked together and um, put together the study and and where we talked about how going back to the scriptural descriptions of God how God is presented in scripture what if we are reintroduced to our own God through our Bibles and then started thinking through Christianity from that point so mm. how to do evangelism well instead of asking ourselves okay so the people that live around me um, how should my church respond to them instead we could say well because we belong to this God, how do we begin evangelism by asking the question, uh, how does the nature of the God that we belong to change our evangelism, or how does it change our a- acts of service in the community, or how does it affect our worship? So always starting with God, um, and then moving from that point out. And so that was that was the first study, mm-hmm. and then the second study um, followed up on that uh, because we had a lot of people saying, okay, great. Thanks for that study, but um, I don't really. How, where do I start with when you talk about getting to know God? Yeah, uh, I I had hoped that I had been clear enough, but to help those people, we did a second study where we did twelve weeks, you know, with the workbook and the DVDs, where we just look at the attributes of God them, themselves. Um, so the third study that we're just starting to get to work on, so we're 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 not close to finishing, uh, is looking at God. At the ex- through his express image, you know the hmm. uh, the glory of God in the face of his son. So, yeah. fantastic. All right, I told you at the beginning that I was going to set you up at the end to just praise Jesus for his grace. Uh, why do you love Jesus Christ so much, John Snyder? Yeah, well, I would say that I, I would be uncomfortable with that question uh, okay. phrased that way because I don't know that I love Jesus Christ so much. When I became a believer, I was just thinking about this yesterday. When I became a believer, uh, you know, so I was preaching before I was a Christian. So once I was converted, um, I didn't change my doctrine. I'd already been reading Puritan, strangely, but Mm. suddenly all those words became alive. And I remember in a prayer before a group of people, you know, when I was about to preach, I remember being about ready to say, you know, how much I loved God. And I stopped in my prayer and I just felt like compared to his love for me, I just couldn't use the same word to describe my affection for him. Mm. And I felt ashamed of my small response to him, you know, and, um, but I do love him, um, uh, poorly, but I do love him. So I'm not embarrassed to say that. Um, I would say that what I have found I, I would say that whatever love there is for Christ in my soul, it has come from seeing the love and loveliness of Christ 
uh, manifested to the Christian. And so really, I feel like I'm just a, a rebellious person who has been conquered by someone who's so infinitely superior to myself that I, I have come to the place that I feel that living for him is the greater adventure than ever living for myself was. Yeah. Um, but really, it is the love and the loveliness of Christ. I wish I could just say it was the loveliness of Christ, that he is so infinitely superior mm. um, that I love him. But that's not true. You know, John's pretty clear in the scripture. We love him because we for, he first loved us. And Paul is mm. clear. The love of Christ for Paul constrained Paul. So uh, to the degree that John Snyder wakes up and sees the loveliness of Christ and the, and the astonishing love of Christ for the sinner, John Snyder, to that degree, I am so happy to be self-forgetful and the tyranny of the urgent and, you know, always being aware of you just seems to fade and you get to live. Mm. And the mornings that I wake up and rush through my Bible reading because I have so many important things to do, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, those days, it seems like I can't ever get past the, the, the enslavement to John's preoccupation with himself. Yeah. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit theshepherdscrook.co. For care and counsel, please call, text, or email to set up a session. You can follow The Shepherd's Crook on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please consider sharing this episode and leaving a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you use. And let me encourage you to remember Jesus Christ.